In September 1978, a ufologist named John Lear grabbed some very fancy photographic equipment and crept to a location nearby Area 51. He took a few photographs, and in one of the photographs was something that the American Air Force did not want anyone to know about. Something that they had gone to great lengths to keep secret, and as we will see, had gone to great lengths to acquire in the first place. This is all a test. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and I'm in the bunker with Nathan Radke. This is the episode that everyone has been dreading. I wanted to apologize to our listeners for what's about to happen. It's a Nathan airplane episode, and he snuck it on me. I didn't know it was coming. He told me it was about something else. I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. Let's talk about it. And now I'm sitting in front of airplane books and airplane posters and airplane pictures, and I even have to say airplane words myself. You're welcome, everyone. Interestingly, if our emails from listeners are anything to go by, about half of our listeners are really excited right now because a lot of people write in and say, hey, why don't you talk more about Cold War airplanes? Okay, so we have the divide between the Lee listeners and the Nathan listeners. That's we have right. the airplane people and the people who can do without the airplane stuff. But here's the thing. It isn't just about airplanes today. We've no. also got some murder. We've really? Got, oh, yeah. Uh, quite a bit of murder, actually. Like, an unpleasant amount of murder. Wow. We've got sex spies. Okay. Uh, honey pots, of course. It's the CIA, right? No, it's not No, this time. really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about Mossad. Okay. There is a lot going on in this. So we're going to start off with a newspaper article that I want you to read. Oh, okay. Washington, April 26th. The vice command of the Air Force Systems Command was killed today when the secret test craft he was flying crashed on the Nevada test site, the Air Force said. The victim was Lieutenant General Robert M. Bond, 54 years old, according to a statement from the systems command at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington. The crash of what the Air Force called, quote, an Air Force specially modified test craft, unquote, occurred about 10.45 a.m. Air Force officials refused to identify the plane further. A waitress who refused to give her name at the Watering Hole Bar and Cafe in nearby Lathrop Wells reported hearing a big noise about 10.20 a.m. and seeing smoke coming from the test site. Quote, We thought it was a bomb, unquote, she said, referring to an underground nuclear explosion that had been scheduled at the Nevada test site but delayed because of winds. Officials at Nellis Air Force Base, whose bombing and gunnery range borders the test site on three sides did not acknowledge that a plane had crashed until Andrews Air Force Base reported it some several hours later. Secret government military tests are conducted in a portion of the test site known as Area 51. The tests are said to include work on the stealth bomber, designed to evade radar. David Miller, a spokesman for the Department of Energy, which operates the test site, said workers at the site reported seeing a plane and later smoke. General Bond, an Air Force veteran of 33 years, had more than 
5,000 flying hours, mostly in tactical fighters. Colonel Alan M. Shoemaker, Director of Public Affairs for the Air Force Systems Command, declined comment on whether other aircraft or missiles might have been involved in the crash, but said that there were, quote, no nuclear weapons involved. Major Salvatore J. Giamo said the command was responsible for developing Air Force weapons systems. Okay, so what I get from that is a plane crashed at Area 51, yeah. which to me does not sound that surprising given what Area 51 is all about. It's true, although in that story we already see that there's something odd going on here. For one thing, that was a bigwig. That wasn't a test pilot. Right. That was a bigwig. That was like a really high-level general. That's right. I did say general, didn't I? Yeah. Like a really important guy, like a project manager. Okay. Why would he be flying some kind of experimental plane? What kind of experimental plane are we talking about here? We saw references to potentially something uh, nuclear going on. And as we'll see, that will figure into that story. Okay. So you're suggesting that there's more to this crash than meets the eye. Well, there was another part that was interesting there when they were saying that, I mean, this was before Area 51 was officially even recognized right. by the Air Force. Right. Like over a decade before. Okay. And what did they say? They said that there are rumors of secret stealth aircraft. Ha ha. So the question then becomes, and this was actually rumors started to spread very quickly after this crash, was this general, this high-level general, flying some kind of brand new top secret stealth airplane when he crashed. Okay. So in order to answer that, we're going to have to get into it. Into it. I'm rubbing my hands together. All right. Like a, like a greedy praying mantis. Okay. So what's going to happen immediately if something happens at Area 51 and it looks like the government is covering it up? Aliens. Yeah, this has got to be aliens. And that's what Lear thought. Yeah, and that's why Lear was off taking photographs. Right. So... That's so, why I think this is an interesting story, not only because the story oh. itself is fascinating, like there is stuff being covered up here. In fact, as I'm going to explain, there is an unbelievably top secret program being covered up at this moment here when this story happened. Is he flying a flying saucer? Well, let's find out. All right, let's find out. Let's find out. Now you've got me hooked. I yeah. want to know. There, there's something that we're going to have to do first. And this is the same thing that you and I did when we went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yep is I gave you a little bit of a primer on how airplanes are... The nomenclature. Yes, the nomlet... The nomlet... <laughs> the nomlet-concerter? We really should be practicing. The, the, the nomenclature. No, no, nomenclature. Nomenclature? Nomenclature. How they are designated. Yes. Okay. Because there's going to be a lot of airplane names tossed around okay. in this episode. And so having some familiarity with how those names work means that we won't have to stop and explain what these planes are. Okay, okay. You'll know what they are and where they came from based just on their names. Okay. In the second half of the 20th century, when this story takes place, there were only a few countries that were in the combat aircraft business. All right. United States, of course. Yep. Soviet Union. Yep. England, France, Germany, Canada. Oh, really? We had a jet fighter, the okay. F-100. Okay. CF-100. And... Uh, Sweden, weirdly. Huh. Sweden has always made their own jet fighters. Okay. By the Saab Corporation, who also used to make cars. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. Okay, Saab. okay. The Swedish airplanes are bizarre, as you would expect. Now, each country has a slightly different method of labeling their planes. England 
because they're kind of old-fashioned, they like to name their planes. So you get your Spitfire, your Vampire, your Lightning, your Vulcan, that kind of thing. Okay. Now, France also names their planes, but tends to give them all the same name for some reason. <laughs> you had the Mirage 3, the Mirage F1, the Mirage 2000, the Mirage okay. 4. It was hopeless. And they were all different? They were all different planes. Okay. The Americans, interestingly, have a, a more bureaucratic method. Okay. And this is going to be helpful for us to understand. Each plane is given a letter and a number. And the letter corresponds to what kind of plane it is. All right. And the number represents when it was designed compared to other planes of the same kind. Okay, that makes sense. So in World War II, fighter planes were designated with the letter P, standing for... Fighter should start with an F. No, P... That's, it's, fighter has a silent P. P-F-I-G-H-T-E-R. Right. No, P stood for Pursuit. Oh, uh, okay. They eventually would change it to F for fighter. I see. Okay, okay. Pursuit. Pursuit. I see. All right. So you had a lot of classics like the P-38, the P-47, and the P-51. Now, which was designed earlier, the P-38 or the P-51? The P-38. Yeah. See? So already... That part makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, they also had B for bomber, A for attack. And in 1948, they switched from P for Pursuit to F for Fighter, and all of the P-51s are now F-51s. Okay. Now, other letters include U for Utility, R for, want to take a guess? Reconnaissance. Excellent. H for Search and Rescue. Why H? I don't know. Okay. T for Terrainers. No, I would never have gotten that. Oh. Q for Drone. If it's an experimental plane, then it's an X. Like the X-1 was the first plane to break the speed of sound. Oh, okay. If it's a prototype of a new design, you put a Y in front of the other letter. So if it's like a, a new... And this is different from experimental? So prototype yep. is different from experimental? Yeah. An experimental plane... I wonder plane, how many people are still listening. <laughs> everybody. An experimental plane, you're only going to make a couple of them and they're for a specific task. A prototype, you're hoping to put this into production. Okay. This is just like the oh, first one. Oh, so one. that's the next development. Yeah, So exactly. an X, a X comes before the Y. An, an X plane is not going to be put into production. Whereas a Y plane, eventually you're going to drop the Y and just put it into production. Okay. Like you're going to have a YF-15, and then once it gets approved, you've got yourself an F-15. Okay, got it. And most American planes are also then given an official name, like the British do, and then almost always a nickname. Right, okay. So you get the A-10. What kind of plane is the A-10? The attack. Yeah, it would Number be 10. an attack plane. And the A-10 attack plane, also called the Thunderbolt 2. Okay. Because the P-47 was a Thunderbolt 1. And nobody calls it the Thunderbolt 2. Everybody calls it the Warthog because it looks like a Warthog. Ah, cute. Okay, so what is a B-52 then? It's a bomber. Yeah, the B-52 Stratofortress. It's also a band. And a hairstyle. Oh. And a drink, I think. So the B-52 Stratofortress, uh, nobody calls it that. Everyone calls it the Buff. B-U-F-F. Okay. For big, ugly, fat fucker. Okay. So what would the YF-17 Cobra be? Well, that would be a prototype of the fighter number 17 in, yeah. in the series. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Which eventually became the F-18. If we come across an American plane, I'll just be able to give the name of it, and you'll immediately be like, I know what that kind of plane is. Right. Oh, well, at least I for. know what it does and where it fits within its production, whether it's earlier or later than other versions of it. Yeah, although that'll also get tricky. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Okay, so the Soviets, on the other hand, have a completely different method. All right. And what's surprising to me is that given the state-controlled ethic behind communism, the design bureau, the individual design bureaus that design the plane, 
that's part of the plane's name. So you have like Sukhoi, Yakolev, Tupolev, Mikoyan, and Gurevich. These are all... Designers? Yeah, these are all like design corporations, basically. I see, okay. Who are making these different planes. So if it's a Sukhoi, it starts with S-U. Mikoyan and Gurevich, that's a MiG. Oh, I was going to ask, where does the MiG come from? The Mikoyan and Gurevich. Because it's the only Soviet plane I know of. Well, I mean, when you say like MiG, everybody knows immediately that's a Soviet fighter. Yeah. Yakolev is Yak, Tupolev is Tu, like T-U. Okay. And then, like the Americans, the Soviets give their planes a number that represented when it was designed compared to that design bureau's other planes. So you have the MiG-15 and the MiG-17. Which one was designed first? The 15. Right. And then you have the MiG-19, MiG-21, and so on. Russian fighter planes use odd numbers, and the bombers use even numbers. Okay. Now, I know what, like, right now people are yelling at their phones. Are they? Saying, but what about the TU-95? <laughs> That's a bomber, but it has an odd number. And what about the TU-128 Fiddler? That's what people are yelling right now. That's what everyone was wondering. Yeah, and I know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It beats me. I blame Soviet apparatchiks for screwing that up. Okay. I think we've got a really good working vocabulary. Yeah, and that, that allows us to move forward now into okay. the story. Into a story. Oh, thank goodness. And for all of the <laughs> for all of the plane nerds listening to this episode, like that whole section, I feel like it scratched them right in their itchy plane brains. Yeah. And for everyone else, thank you for still listening. So why am I going into this detail? Because this is a story about Area 51. Almost any Area 51 story is going to have a lot of plane names in it. Okay. And now we can just buzz through them. All right, so let's talk about Area 51. Let's talk about Area 51. This is something that we have talked about before. We have an entire episode in Area 51. Yep. We have our first junk drawer episode. We also discuss Area 51. Yep. Because we talked about the Lockheed Skunk Works. Yep. But why don't we right now very quickly do like a, a brief summary of what Area 51 is? Sure. Area 51 is a secret base, designs, builds, tests, experimental aircraft. During the Korean War, there's a guy named Richard Leghorn. And his job during the Korean War is planning reconnaissance missions, flyovers of North Korea to take surveillance photographs. But there's a problem, which is that the planes, the American planes, keep getting shot down by MiG fighters. I did some airplane research. Ooh. Yes. MiGs can go to reach an altitude of 45,000 feet. So... Leghorn is like sending out these planes and they're going around the same height and they're trying to take some pictures of North Korea to see what's going on on the ground and they get shot down. The war ends, the Korean War that is, and Leghorn has an idea. You know, he was bothered by the failure to some extent of these airplanes not to be able to carry out their missions. And of course, there's the human tragedy of uh, fighters being shot down. So he thinks to himself, what if we could design a plane that can fly significantly higher than 45,000 feet? If that's the kind of ceiling that the MiGs can reach, if we could get something to fly, say, 60,000 feet, that's going to get to do what it wants. It's Even if the Soviets know it's there, it's, it's going to essentially be untouchable. So Leghorn shops this idea around. The army is not interested. He takes it to Curtis LeMay of Strategic Air Force Command. And Curtis LeMay is not interested, apparently. He walked out on the meeting where where Leghorn was uh, showing the prototypes, or the idea, at least. But the newly created CIA, 
they are interested because it's a spy plane. The future head of Area 51, Richard Bizell, together with another CIA officer named Herbert Miller, get into a Beechcraft V-35 Bonanza, and they sort of circle around the states, especially Las Vegas, Nevada area, to scout out some sites. And they find a dried-out desert lake called Groom Lake in the Nevada desert. And it already has a temporary landing strip that was used during World War II to train pilots. And the lake bed itself is a wonderful landing strip. It's very flat. It's totally dry. Groom Lake is quite close to an already secret facility, the Nevada uh, nuclear testing site, which means that it's already totally secret. Now today, Las Vegas is just, and I don't need to tell listeners, this is a huge giant booming metropolis but back then in the mid 50s it was a tiny little town i didn't look it up like 60,000 people that's sort of the range that we're thinking of here and it's you know whatever 70 miles away yeah they couldn't have imagined that that would eventually be a problem no exactly so for all intents and purposes this is the middle of nowhere and it's already next to a secret site so fantastic they found the base, the CIA base there for the production of the first, this, this spy plane that they were thinking of, which becomes the U-2, this super high-flying reconnaissance airplane. How come it's got a U in it? Why isn't it That's the R-2? That's an excellent R2? question. Why is it, it should be the R-2? And the reason is the name U-2 is a lie. Oh. Because which... this was a top-secret plane, part of the secrecy is they gave it the wrong name. They give it U for utility, uh, like it was going to be like a crop duster or something. That's why. What was the plane that was then designed at Area 51 to replace the U-2? Was it the A-12? Right. And so what Which kind of plane... Which is my favorite plane. Yeah, because it's an amazing plane. But what does A stand for? Well, that should be an attacker. Which it isn't. It isn't. Because be that name also a lie. Right. Okay, but wait. We're supposed to be talking about the base, not airplanes again. So ah. let me just finish off and round out this, this history of Area 51. So it's, so it's founded in 1955. It's designed, or its purpose is to uh, test experimental aircraft, especially, I guess, reconnaissance aircraft. There was the U-2, the A-12. It also begins the first investigation into, into drone prototypes are produced there. I was surprised that that already starts in the 60s. Yeah. Like, Although there were a lot of crashes. Sure. Like so many crashes. And this is why, was, you know, like somebody crashes in Area 51, maybe not the most surprising thing, because this is what this base was there for. It's known colloquially as Area 51, and that's because the Nevada testing site of which it is appended used the designation area to talk about the testing terrain. So they had like test area one, test area five, and area 51 was appended to the Nevada testing, nuclear testing base, and it is known as area 51. It's also known as dreamland. Okay, that's area 51. So this is where we really need to get into some Cold War fighter planes. This is where the story is going to go. All right. Right, so World War II made it clear that going forward, a fundamental aspect of waging war was going to involve controlling the skies. Air power created a three-dimensional war. Yeah, 
And that's why it's modern warfare, right? This yep. is the advancement of modern warfare where, yeah, those old kind of defenses just don't work because you can fly over them. So it makes total sense that after the Second World War, you're like, yeah, airplanes are here to stay. Yeah, this is it. Like This you, is the you way you do it now. You can't wage war without controlling the skies because with air, air power, you can provide cover for your ground forces. You can destroy the enemy ground forces from above. You can intercept and destroy enemy strategic bombers before they can destroy your cities. And you can protect and escort your strategic bombers so they can destroy your enemy cities. Right. Like, that's a lot of modern war. Yeah. It really shifts the balance, too, in terms of who is the military power. Yeah. And to do any of those things effectively, you need to have air superiority, or ideally, air supremacy. Right. So air superiority, that means you have the capacity to carry out air operations without being prevented unduly by the enemy. Air supremacy, you have the capacity to prevent the enemy from doing any kind of air operations. You own the sky. Right. With air superiority, you're kind of renting the sky. Okay. (laughs) So this sets up a kind of arms race for the second half of the 20th century and maybe beyond. Absolutely. It becomes a really key part of the Cold War is who can get the best fighter planes, who is going to be able to achieve air superiority in any kind of upcoming battle. Now, there's all sorts of things that you need to have to have air superiority. Obviously, the logistics, you have to have ground crew and you have to have like support on the ground for uh, maintaining the planes and you need to have uh, runways and you have to have all these things, of course, and fuel. You need to have the better planes and you need to have better pilots. Okay. Those are the crucial things. Especially better planes. By the end of World War II, the writing was on the wall. After four decades of propeller planes, jet fighters were now obviously the way forward. Okay. In World War II, the Germans had the edge on jet fighter designs. They had a plane called the Messerschmitt 262, which was by far the most advanced of the jet fighters. The Americans, of course, had the P-59 Era Comet, which is a plane that we've talked about before. We've also seen it in real life. Okay. This is the Gorilla plane. Oh, okay. The plane that was tested with pilots wearing gorilla suits, according to the test pilot, a guy called Jack Willems, for reasons that we've talked about in other episodes. Right. Uh, how to hide a plane in plain view? Yeah. That's an awkward, awkward sentence. That's an awkward sentence. Speaking of awkward, <laughs> the Soviets had produced the Yak-23, which we have up on the wall. It's the top one. Okay. And it is an awkward-looking little thing. Like, it is hilarious. I want you to describe to the listeners what the Yak-23 looks like. It's a stork with a chopped-off beak for an air intake, and it's stubby. I was going to say, if somebody took a goldfish yeah. and then crammed a bunch of wings on it, and the goldfish was surprised that it happened, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's sort of what this plane looks like. So after the war, a lot of the data gathered by those German scientists who had been making the German jet fighters, of course, where does that data end up? America and the USSR. Yeah. Because so, both, both, both countries, as they go into Germany, take out a lot of the engineers and scientists and drag them off to their countries. Well, America offers them a lucrative deal. <laughs> Soviets drag them over there and threaten them with death. By the time of the Korean War, the Americans have put some of that German know-how into use, and they've built their first proper swept-wing jet fighter, the F-86. Okay. And by swept-wing, these are these are where the wings kind of angle backwards? Exactly. The wings angle backwards, which they realized this helps the plane go faster. It helps it be more controllable at high speeds. The first generation of jet fighters mostly just had straight wings. In the Korean War, the British were still flying straight-winged meteor fighters from World War II, 
they were jet fighters, but they were like first generation. So okay. it's kind of like taking a propeller plane and just sticking a jet engine on it. Okay. We're not changing anything else. The British pilots used to sing a song titled, All I Want for Christmas is My Wing Swept Back. <laughs> so the Korean War is a proxy war between the Soviets and the Americans, which means that the North Koreans have access to Soviet equipment. There were actually Soviet fighters flying the MiGs. Yeah. In North Korea. Yeah, there were Soviet pilots flying Soviet planes, Which but seem, with North Korean markings. But this seems like very dangerous that's, in terms of flirting with World War III. That's pretty dicey. You had American pilots and Soviet pilots fighting each other over the skies, but the advantage is you can't tell where the pilot is from. Right. So you could pretend that they were North Korean pilots. The Americans went into that war thinking... You know, we've seen this ridiculous stubby Yak-23 that the Soviets came up with. We are not concerned. And they sent in F-80s and their F-84s, a lot of these sort of old-fashioned straight-wing American jet fighters. Okay. And to their shock and horror, in the skies over North Korea, they encounter the MiG-15. Okay. Now, the MiG-15, it's up on the wall, too. Describe the MiG-15. Well, it looks significantly more modern. It looks a lot sleeker. Yeah. It looks basically like a rocket yeah. with swept back wings. It looks lethal. Yeah. No, it looks like a legit airplane, yeah. like a legit jet fighter. And it looks a lot more modern than the Yak-23. Yeah. There, there's no comparison between those two planes. And... It doesn't have that stork underbeak thing. Right. It no longer looks like a surprised goldfish. <laughs> So the MiG-15, when it shows up in the air, it outclasses everything the Americans have huh. that has straight wings. Okay. Except for the F-86, which is the one they have with swept back wings. Now, why did they not send that? They did. Immediately, once the MiG-15 shows up, they're like, okay, clearly we are at a disadvantage in the sky here. We've got to send our brand new planes in. Okay. So now the F-86 gets sent in, and the Korean War has all sorts of pitched and frantic dogfights between F-86 pilots and MiG-15 pilots. And the MiG-15 was faster than the F-86. It was more maneuverable, it climbed higher, and it hit much, much harder than its American counterpart. The American... By hit, you mean they had better weaponry. Yeah, well, more powerful weaponry for sure. The F-86 has machine guns, like okay. it's a World War II plane. Yeah, okay. And the MiG-15 has got cannons. Wow, okay. And the difference between being hit by a machine gun bullet and being hit by a cannon shell right. is the difference between getting a hole in your plane... And having your plane disintegrate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. But they were pretty close. The, the MiG-15 and the F-86 were pretty close. The main thing that's going to decide the outcome of a fight between these two was the skill and training of the pilots involved. So after the ceasefire, the Americans were absolutely shocked one day when at Kimpo Air Force Base in South Korea, what should come in and land at the American Air Force Base but a MiG-15? And then after this MiG-15 lands on the runway, which as you would imagine causes quite a bit of stir. I'm surprised nobody shot it down on its way in. Well, it very well could have been. Like this was a risky move that this pilot pulled off. Uh, the pilot's name was No Kim Sok. He was North Korean and he was defecting. Okay. He had not wanted to be a North Korean. Okay. But he hid his anti-communist sentiments and he hid them so well that he was actually able to work his way into the North Korean Air Force. The whole time he's doing it, he's planning on making a run for it. That is a long con. That is a long con, but oof, did it ever pay off for this guy. Okay. Because not only does he not get shot down, not only does he successfully get out of North Korea and land his MiG-15 uh, at an American base, but unbeknownst to him, he didn't know about this, 
the Americans had a $100,000 reward for anybody who would deliver to them a MiG-15. Oh, nice. So he's just excited about not getting shot down. And they're like, also, you just got $100,000. That's like a million dollars in today money. So he's he's Score. doing what a day. Oh, and he's not North Korean. And he's not North Korean anymore. He's not dead. He's not North Korean. And he's rich. Yeah. And that plane that he landed, you and I have seen it. Okay. It was at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We stood right in front of that exact plane. Had I only known its significance. we got to go back. All right, okay. <laughs> and so it was brought back to America for testing. Okay, like yeah, Extensive yeah, sure. testing. It's like, what are the strengths of this thing? What are yeah. the weaknesses of this thing? How can we best train our pilots to try to take on this, this monstrous little thing? I mean, Soviet tech in the 50s is quite remarkable. Yeah. They're sending people and things to the to space, and they've got a great jet fighter. I mean, it's pretty surprising. And it was surprising. It kept surprising the American intelligence agencies. When the MiG-15 showed up, they were like, what in the world is this? How did they do that? They also got hold of a Yak-23, the goofy little goldfish yeah. thing. And they got that from a Romanian pilot who defected with it to Yugoslavia, where Actually, it was he saying, didn't get a million dollars for it. No, he did not. <laughs> but, I mean, it was disassembled in Yugoslavia. It was brought to right field. It was reassembled, tested, then deassembled, and then brought back to Yugoslavia, reassembled, and then given back. Really? You don't want people to know how you've gotten their planes. Okay. Because then maybe they'll crack down, they'll come up with ways so that you will be prevented from getting planes in the future. Oh, so the giving back was to it's hide... It's a bit of spycraft. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Whereas the North Korean pilot who landed his MiG-15, that was public. That was out in the open. You might as well keep that one. Okay, you know, I, I, I'm already regretting asking this question. And I'm already excited about answering it. But what was it about the MiG that made it so much better? Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily better. That's what they learned when they started testing this thing. Okay. It was very maneuverable, but it was a little hard to control, especially at speed. The cannons were very powerful, but they fired very slowly. And it was extraordinary just how crude these planes were. Okay. Like they were effective, but they were so crude and simple. But what the Americans learned from the MiG-15 was, okay, this isn't a problem, right? Like right now, the Soviet planes are basically at par with ours. Okay. But we're about to have a bunch of new generation fighters show up, the third generation of American jet fighters, and they are going to absolutely eat the Soviets' lunch. Are they incorporating what they learned from the MiG? Exactly. The MiG that they got? Sort of. Okay. Okay, so after the Korean War, American companies like Lockheed and McDonnell and Republic, they were designing brand new fighter planes, and they were going to have this radically different philosophy based on what they learned from the MiG-15 testing. During the Korean War... The, the, the fighter planes were still, they were jets, but they were still gunfighters. They were still in these real tight dogfights, as if it was World War I and you were flying soft with camels. Yeah. Still twisting <laughs> and turning and like trying to get on your opponent's tail to get off some, some gunshots. Third generation American fighters, they weren't going to be these little, nimble, slow, like dogfighters. They were going to be big. They were going to be heavy. They were going to be complicated. They were going to be unbelievably powerful. Uh, they were going to be extraordinarily fast. And rather than being dogfighters, they're just going to be these big, fast missile trucks. Okay. Because rather than so getting no into more, a... there's no more machine guns. Because okay. you're not going to need them. Right. So, if you have missiles, why do you need machine guns? Yeah, exactly. And then you'd, you would have to get really close with machine guns. So, yeah. 
Yeah, if somebody has a spear and someone else has a knife, well, like you're not going to be able to get close enough to stab them with the knife because the person's going to get you with the spear. So the missile is like the spear on the plane. Got it. Whereas the cannon and the machine gun, it's like having a little switchblade knife. And so rather than getting into a twisty dogfight, you're just going to fire off missiles from, from much further away at your enemy. You're never even going to maybe even see your enemy. Okay. You're certainly not going to get into a twisty, turny fight. And so speed was prioritized over maneuverability. And this generation of American jet fighters was fast AF, like two times the speed of sound. Mach wow. 2. Okay. Like extraordinarily fast. And as you pointed out, a lot of the new ones didn't even have guns. The F-4, the F-102, the F-106. These are missile trucks. Okay. And you can see in front of you, that's yeah. a classic example, the McDonald F-4. Okay. And so like describe this thing. It looks modern. It has now the air intake valves are on the side of the plane, un unlike the MiG where it looked like the, the nose cone was sheared off. And that's uh, because in the nose cone now, you've got a great big powerful radar. Oh, So you got to okay. move those intakes to the side so you can have that great big radar in the nose. Yeah. It looks muscular. Yeah. Compared to the MiG and the Yak, uh, this looks like a real, like you were saying, like it's powerful. It's like broad shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. This is a big, huge, fast, complicated fighter plane. Okay. It looks modern too. Yeah. And then the Vietnam War gets rolling in the 1960s. And again, we've got American jets fighting Soviet jets tangling in the skies of East Asia. So what do the Vietnamese pilots have? They've got MiG-17s for the most part, and there's a MiG-17 on the wall. And it's going to be hard to notice it because it basically, I think you'll agree, just looks exactly like a MiG-15. Exactly. That's what, if you were going to ask me to describe it, that's what I would have said. It looks almost the same. Yeah. And so looking at the F-4 in front of you and the MiG-17 on the wall... Like, how would you compare those two? I, you're looking at different generations. It feels also like you have a featherweight versus a heavyweight yeah. fighter, where one punch from the heavyweight is just going to send you flying, whereas the featherweight would have to land 300 punches to make a dent. Yeah, the MiG-17 was a tiny little old-timey-looking fighter plane that yep. looked like it was from a previous generation because yep. it basically was going up against these big, massive, powerful American planes. But something weird was happening. These MiG-17s that couldn't break the speed of sound in level flight, so the American planes are more than twice as fast, they didn't have sophisticated radar equipment, they didn't have missiles, they still just had guns. But somehow these MiG-17s were knocking the American F-105s and F-4s out of the sky. Really? Yeah. And the American military was at a loss. How is this possible? How are these old-timey, tiny little gunfighters taking down our massive, powerful missile trucks? I am also very curious. The American designers had made a bit of a mistake. Uh-oh. They had assumed that missiles meant the days of dogfighting were over. Yes. They were not. Oh. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Right. That's like a crucial idea that we always have to remember. Mike Tyson said... Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Until they get punched in the mouth, exactly. <laughs> and here was the problem. The American pilots in these massive missile trucks, they needed to wait until they could confirm the identity of unidentified aircraft before engaging with them. Uh, okay. By the time you do that, you're in a dogfight. Right. Especially when the planes are so tiny. Yeah. Because you can't see them from a distance and their engines don't smoke. So by the time you see a MiG-17, it is like all up on you. Okay. And you don't have machine guns. And you don't have machine guns so or cannon. Do? It takes over five seconds to get a Sparrow missile locked onto a target. 
Imagine in a twisting, turning dogfight how long five seconds would be. Well, I've played these, Not they're not exactly simulators, but I've played these fighter jet games on, and this is the most frustrating thing, is trying to get the lock on, on your enemy, and they're always dodging about. You can't do it easily. Yeah. And, and then if what if there's two or three in the sky? And there would be. And not only that, the MiG-17, those things could turn. Right. Because they're small because and light. Because they're small and light, and these American planes are having a hard time turning with them. And even if you can get locked on, even if you do manage to get the five-second missile lock, a lot of the missiles just didn't even work. Oh. So by the time you get close enough to see the enemy planes, the American pilots would get into a turning match with the little Soviet planes. And the big, heavy American planes were at a big disadvantage in that sort of fight. And as you point out, no cannons. Mm. And so, like, you can't use a missile in close. And to make matters worse, there's a brand new Soviet fighter plane on the scene, the MiG-21. Oh. And this new thing is still maneuverable, but it's fast, and it's got missiles, and there's one on the wall. And what do you think of that one? That looks kind of modern. It looks like it's gone two generations ahead of the MiG-15 and MiG-17. It's sleek. It's... It looks lethal. It does. It looks actually like like a syringe or something. Yeah. It like looks pointy d- and, yeah. and sharp and yeah. And and a bit bigger. It's still much smaller than the American planes, yeah. but it's bigger than the, the MiG-17 and the MiG-15. So now we got a problem. This this MiG-21 is going to make itself a problem. Okay. All right. And now let's get out of Asia for a second. Okay. Because Asia isn't the only place where American fighter planes and Soviet fighter planes are fighting each other. Okay. This is also happening in the Middle East. Oh, right. Yes. Because in the Middle East, there's jet fighters tangling in other conflicts. Arab nations like Iraq had bought MiGs from the Soviet Union. And Israel was buying a lot of equipment from France, so they were getting a lot of mirages. Okay. Because what does France have? Mirages, for some reason. And the Israelis wanted to learn more about the MiGs, to figure out their strengths and weaknesses. And they were like, if we can get a pilot to defect then we could not only get our hands on some undamaged Soviet jets, but we could also get our hands on those pilots. Yeah. And that would be like a massive breakthrough as far as training goes. But how? And so now we get to an organization that we haven't talked about before somehow, Mossad. Have we not? We have never talked about Mossad. No, I think we did in the Hitler episode, uh, Is Hitler Still Alive? Oh, yes, that's right, because Mossad tracked down some Nazis in South America. And you'd be like, they would have a lot of incentive if Hitler were actually alive to find... But that was was like a cameo appearance at the uncover-up. Yeah, now we're going to get into Mossad. Who is Mossad? It's the Israeli Secret Service. Yeah, they're not as big as the CIA. They weren't as big as the KGB, but they were... Very efficient. They're very efficient. They're renowned yeah. for their efficiency, their lethal tactics. Yeah, and as we'll see. Krav Maga is a martial art, a modern martial art that is developed, I think, by Mossad as a really brutal hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, not pretty at all. No, it's it's the kind of thing where you squeeze somebody's eyes out so that they, you know, are incapacitated. Yeah, so if Krav Maga was an agency, it would be the Mossad. It would be Mossad, because it was created by Mossad, I think. Yeah. So Mossad has an idea. Operation Diamond. Okay. Gets off to a really bad start. In 1960, a Mossad agent named Jean Thomas went to Egypt to try to bribe a pilot to deliver a MiG-21 to Israel for testing. Yeah. Thomas is caught and publicly executed for espionage. Like, this is not a a game. Mm -mm. This is deadly serious stuff. 
whoever has the best fighter planes, like they might win ultimately. Sure. Because now, yeah, things like the size of your army, the size of your country matter a lot less if you have the top military equipment, specifically jet fighters. Yeah. I mean, jet fighters are protecting your country. They're eliminating other countries' abilities to protect themselves. This is like in the second half of the 20th century, this stuff is crucial. Obviously, that didn't work out. But let me ask you, imagine a, like a 1960s fighter pilot. No. What kind of spy do you think would be most effective at convincing your classic 1960s... Oh, here we go. Here's the honeypot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why are you going to... What is a honeypot and why would you send honeypots? A honeypot is a term for basically somebody, somebody used for sexual seduction mm-hmm. in spycraft. Yeah. So if, if you want to compromise somebody, if you want to get information from them, you could use a sex worker or you could use a spy who is... Just really good looking. Yeah, exactly. To seduce your target and have them, because they are interested in this person sexually, to, to let their guard down, betray secrets, you know, do all kinds of things. I mean, love is almost like a kind of insanity. Yeah. And your attraction, desire, potential. It's a drug. Exactly. And you think, well, this is not dangerous. I'm in a, you know, I do my politics and I do my spy craft out there in the world. And then you're in the bedroom and you feel like this is maybe a safe space. Yeah, with this really attractive person who is very skilled in making you feel like you're attractive and yeah, desirable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds cartoonish. It sounds like movie stuff, but this happened a lot. It's still happening. Oh, well, I mean, there have been recently some Russian honeypots who have been arrested in the United States. Right. Uh, Anna Chapman was arrested in New York City a okay. few years back. So Mossad learns that in uh, the Iraqi Air Force flies MiG-21s. And that's the one, right? That's the one you got to learn about. And they also learned that the Iraqi Air Force was sending a bunch of pilots for training in Texas. Really? So these Iraqi Air Force pilots go to Texas, and they're excited. This is, this is a... back when Iraq and America were allies. Yeah, it's history is complicated, and much to these pilots' like delight, once they get to Texas, not only are they having like steaks and riding horses and everything, but there's these really beautiful women who seem to be into them. Okay. These women really seem to have taken to them to these Iraqi Air Force pilots. Okay. What a delight! Right. I might not ask too many questions at that point. One of the pilots was Lieutenant Hamid Dahi. And this beautiful woman is hanging out with him. He's having a great time with her. After they fooled around a bit, she tells him, listen, here's the deal. I'm from Mossad. We want you to defect and we want you to bring one of your MiG-21s with you. And he turns her down. Now, tragically, a couple days later, he is murdered in a Texas bar. He's out at a bar having a drink. The lights go out. There's gunshots. The lights come on. He's been murdered. The the local authorities have no idea why. Nobody has ever prosecuted for it. It's just one of those things that happens, I guess. I mean, you put your finger on the scale by saying he was murdered Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, he, he, he died for some reason. Maybe it was an accident or something. So he was taken out. This was a hit. Gunshots. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. Nobody ever solved this crime. Okay. But the other pilots go back home. As a result of that? Well, I mean, they were, gonna, they were due to go back home anyway, but certainly that was like a shocking thing to have happen. And so one of the pilots was a Captain Mahmoud Yusuf. 
And he goes back home to Baghdad. To his surprise and delight, you know who goes to Baghdad to meet him? Is that woman that he met in Texas. Huh. How, how amazing is that? And so now they're hanging out and they're having a great time. And then she tells him, listen, here's the deal. I need you to defect and bring us a MiG-21. And Captain Yusuf says, no, I'm not going to do that. Tragically, he was then murdered. No. In a Baghdad hotel room. I'm starting to suspect the honeypots. I mean, you're, I think you're jumping to conclusions awfully quickly here. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Now, there was another pilot, Captain Mohammed Raglub. Okay, if he dies by gunshot, then I am going to be suspicious. He's not going to die from gunshot. Oh, okay. So he is approached, again in Baghdad, by one of these Texas women that he met. Okay. And he's like, oh, what a delight. And she suggests they go on a trip together, like a nice romantic trip. What's the most romantic country to go to? Uh, France. Right, Germany. So they go to Germany, and while they're on this romantic trip to Germany, this woman tells him, listen, I'm a Mossad agent, we want you to defect, and we want you to bring a MiG-21 with you. And Raglob turns her down. Tragically, he then falls out of a high-speed train and is killed. Okay, they're totally, the honeypots are doing it. But we've still got more, we got more, we got more pilots, we got one more pilot. Captain Munir Habib Jamil Redfa. Okay. So he is approached. Now, at this point, he has lost a lot of his fellow pilots. Yeah, yeah. You'd think you'd start being suspicious here, no? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I wonder if they had talked about this amongst each other, amongst themselves. I mean, you know that that you, they, they're obviously not with the honeypots all day long, so they sometimes go... Be like, hey, you'll never guess who was in Baghdad. That, right. That attractive woman I met. Yeah, it's like, exactly. huh, you won't also believe who I met in Baghdad, that attractive woman I met. Right. They're all in Baghdad. Baghdad is a hip place to be. So Raglob is approached, and this time the honeypot works him a little slower. But she does get him to like come with her, and to, they're doing some stuff together. But they try a new approach with this one. Now, Redfa is at a bar, and there's another fighter pilot at the bar. Not an Iraqi fighter pilot, but a Polish fighter pilot. And he hangs out with Red Fun because they're both fighter pilots. They have a lot in common and they're talking and they're having a good time. And they're talking about flying and stuff like that. That Polish fighter pilot, he really was a Polish fighter pilot, also a Mossad agent. Really? So now they're working Red Fun from two angles at once. Okay. They've got the honeypot, but they've also got like the camaraderie of this right. fellow fighter pilot. And they also have the fact that every person who has turned down this offer has been killed. And so Redfa is, is given the option. It's like, hey, uh, maybe you want to defect and give us a MiG-21? And he says yes. Okay. He dies. Of natural causes in 1998. All right. So he, he manages to live out his time. Yeah. So clearly this is the healthier option if you want to live a long time. And so on August 26, 1966... Redfa gets into his MiG-21. He asks the ground crew, hey, could you give me a little bit of extra fuel? I want to do some fancy flying up there. And they give him the extra fuel. He takes off. He's sort of doing some turns. He's going around. He's doing a zigzag. And then he bolts okay. across Jordan to Israel. Okay. The Jordanians scramble some Hawker Hunter planes that they bought from the, from the British to try to get the MiG-21. No chance at getting close to this MiG-21. Okay. He is flying. Meanwhile, his family are pretending to be on a picnic. They get picked up 
by a helicopter right at the border and smuggled out of wow. Iraq to prevent them from being punished for his actions. Yeah, well, he's not going to do it if it means his whole family gets executed or whatever. Yeah. Imprisoned. Yeah. Although he, he was fooling around with a honeypot. People are complicated, I guess. People is what are we're complicated, saying. but there's one thing about fooling around with somebody right. and another. It's one thing to for like... me to fool around with an attractive honeypot, but for me to get my family executed—that's hard to get to sleep. It does feel like a different order of. Yeah, I feel like that would take some of the joy out of flirting with a honeypot. So the Israelis now have a MiG-21. Uh, they fly it against their own French mirages. They spend about a hundred hours flying mock combat drills. So then the next year in 1967, when Israel launches an attack on Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, countries that have a lot of MiGs, the jet fighter kill ratio was 36 to 1 in favor of the Israeli pilots. Wow. That's what information will do. Mm. That's what happens when you can test your opponent's stuff and say, here are the strengths, here are the weaknesses. For every one Israeli plane that gets shot down, they shoot down 36 MiGs. They actually accidentally get a couple more MiGs. In 1968, a pair of Syrian MiG-17s got lost. Oh. And accidentally landed in northern Israel. Okay. Now, there is some discussion about maybe they didn't get lost so much as they had their communications interfered with, and an Arabic-speaking Mossad agent tricked them into landing in Israel. Oh, okay. But, so now, the Israelis have got a couple MiG-17s, they got this MiG-21, they're really getting it done. And the Six-Day War, of course, was a big military success for Israel, but it also cost them a lot in, in like, global opinion. People were like, hey, it's one thing when you're being attacked. It's right. a, entirely another thing when you launch an attack on other countries. Yeah. And so France was no longer willing to sell Israel weapons. Okay. But you know what country makes a ton of weapons and would be super interested in getting their hands on some MiGs in the late 1960s? That would be the U.S. The United States. Yep. And so the Americans make a deal. We'll give you some F-4s. You give us those MiGs. Okay. By 1969, there was a MiG-21 and a couple of MiG-17s sitting in a hangar at... Area 51. The thing that this episode is all about. The thing that this episode is all about. Uh, The planes were tested to see their advantages and disadvantages in order to give the American pilots an edge in combat. And the U.S. Navy in particular was super interested in this. They brought in instructors to fly against the MiGs in order to train in tactics and strategies, and then they would bring those tactics and strategies to a flight school okay, where you would teach other pilots how to fight those MiGs. Right, yeah. And of course, that dogfighting school became known as... Top Gun. Top Gun. Really? That's Top Gun. This is the story behind Top Gun. Oh. Interestingly... They don't elaborate that in the movie, right? No. No. If you are at the Top Gun school and you reference the movie Top Gun, it costs you $5. (laughs) You're not allowed to say, hey, that took my breath away. You're not allowed to play shirtless volleyball. You're not allowed to have a Roxette album. You can't have a Roxette album. If you you reference (laughs) Top Gun while attending the United States Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, that's five bucks. Five bucks. What's fascinating is at first, when they were testing American Navy pilots against these MiGs, against these ancient, tiny little MiG-17s, not a single American Navy pilot came away with a victory in simulated combat at Wow. Not one. Because they hadn't been trained in dogfighting. Yeah. Because they had been told the days of dogfighting were over. Yeah. And they clearly were not. And also, the analysts argued that overconfidence on the part of the American pilots played a role. Sure. And this is tricky, right? Because you want your pilots to be 
aggressive. You want them to like have a bit of an yeah, ego. Yeah, but you got to respect your enemy. But you got to respect your enemy. Yeah. Yep. But they also found some serious deficiencies in the MiG-17. At speeds over Mach 0.85, the plane basically became uncontrollable. Okay. Like you could not, like the stick got so heavy, you could barely move it. The cannons had a very low firing rate. And the American planes had better vertical maneuverability. So going up. Okay. And so what is the lesson? What were they teaching the American pilots? Energy is life. Maintain high energy in a fight with a MiG. And where do you get energy from? You can get it from speed or you can get it from altitude. Okay. Because you can transform speed into altitude. You can transform altitude into speed if you want. So maintain that energy high. Use steep dives to get away. Don't try to get into a turn. And whatever you do, don't get close and don't dogfight. Okay. Like, dive in, peel off, get away. Regroup so, far away, come back, try it again. That makes a lot of sense. And yet I feel like we should be designing different kinds of planes. Well, and they would after this. I mean, okay. these are tactics that you can use in these big, heavy American Right, right, trucks. right. So it's like, here's what we got. This is... What can we... Yeah, how can we fight these planes with what we got? Okay. The MiG-21 was extremely fast and nimble, but it had terrible visibility from the cockpit and extremely limited range. Okay. So if you can draw the fight out a little longer, it's going to run out of fuel. Okay. And also, it's just, it's hard for the pilots to see out of this thing. Okay. Now, the Air Force wasn't as quick as the Navy to jump on this opportunity to take advantage of the captured MiGs, but by 1975, they developed their own Top Gun-style school named Red Flag. And they used American planes that had similar characteristics to the Soviet ones as stand-ins. Because, I mean, these MiGs are so expensive. You can't be using them in these right. schools. So you find American planes like A4s and F5s that are a little bit like the Soviet ones. And then you get instructors who are trained to fly them as if they're MiGs. Okay. And, of course, the Americans would leave Vietnam. But by the time they left, the fighter plane kill ratio, particularly for the Navy, had improved dramatically. Okay. Now, the other big impact that the stolen MiGs had was, as you pointed out, on fighter design. And the next generation of fighter planes incorporated the lessons that the American military had learned in the skies over Vietnam and the skies over Area 51. Because now the new F-14, the F-15, the F-16, the F-18, these things weren't quite as fast as the previous third generation, but they were super maneuverable, they had great visibility from the cockpits, and they all had built-in cannons. Okay. Because they're like, right, cannons, we can't give up on the cannons yet. Meanwhile, the new Soviet fighter had showed up on the scene, trying to copy the previous generation of American fighters. Oh, no. The, so they take a step backwards. Yeah, they kind of take a step backwards with this one. The MiG-15, 17, and 21 were small, maneuverable, and simple. The new MiG-23, up on the wall there, was giant, blisteringly fast, complicated, and it turned like a truck. <laughs> okay. Like, this thing was just, well, we'll get into it. And it didn't take long for some of these new Soviet fighter planes to show up in Area 51, thanks to shifting allegiances with Egypt. Okay. Because this is a question that you were wondering about Iraq. If Iraq and Americans were friends, why didn't Iraq just give them some planes? Well, that is what Egypt would eventually do. Okay. They would give America some of these MiG-23s. And since it was going to be the new Soviet fighter, this thing was going to have to be tested. Mm -hmm. So on October 21st, 1982... Linda Potsai came home from her nursing college to see a blue car with Air Force plates parked in front of her home. And when she saw that, she knew immediately what it meant. It meant that her husband, Captain Mark Potsai, had been killed. Oh, no. She was told that he had been killed instantly, which I guess is always kind of a relief. 
uh, but she didn't get any other information. Her husband went off to work at Area 51 and never came back. Eventually, she was told that Captain Postai had been killed flying a Northrop F-5. Okay. Which is sort of like a little cheap American fighter plane that was very maneuverable. It was kind of like one of those old MiGs. It was built to sell to other countries. Canada bought a bunch of them. So now she's been told, okay, well, your husband was killed flying a Northrop F-5. And her lawyer suggested that maybe the Air Force should answer some questions about how exactly this happened. Mm -hmm. And Northrop, the company that makes the F-5, they, they hear about this. And they talk to the Air Force and they're like, wait a second. So one of our F-5s crashed. Which one? Why did it happen? What's right. going on here? Are right, we right, going right. to get sued? Is right. there a problem with our plane? Like, what's going on? Yeah. So there's a lot of Co noise. Cover stories need to actually, like, work. And, yeah, and already <laughs> you can tell this is a cover story. So then the Air Force, they, are, they quietly take Northrop and Linda Postai aside and say, okay, he wasn't killed in an F-5. He was killed while flying in a classified program. And that's all they'll say. Now, Northrop is happy with that because they're right. like, it's not our plane. It's not our problem. Exactly. The truth is, of course, Captain Pasta had been flying in a, in a MiG-23. Okay. And his engine had cut out. The flying supervisor had radioed to him to tell him to bail out, abandon yeah. the plane and bail out. But Pasta would have known what a valuable asset this thing was uh -huh. and was clearly trying to get it back to the landing strip. Okay. And he got close. He was just short of the runway and he ran out of speed. Uh. And when you run out of speed in a plane, it stalls, crashed into the ground. He had punched his ejection seat at the last moment. The MiGs had very flawed ejection systems and it caused him to hit the canopy on the way out. Oh. And so he was, he was killed instantly. They, they told the truth about that part. Now, Major David Bland was a friend and a colleague of Postai. And he said afterwards that Postai didn't want to fly the MiG-23. Nobody wanted to fly this thing. It was terrifying. It was a disaster. It was unbelievably complicated. Not only was it super fast, but if you look up at the sketch of it on the wall, notice the wings. Are the wings swept back or are no, they kind of sticking gonna, out? Yeah, I was going to say that. It's gone back to this sort of sticky out wing design. Yeah, it, it appears That's to have the really... technical term. Yeah, sticky out. It's got the sticky out wings. But here's the thing. It's only sticky out some of the time. Ooh, the could, they, could they, they move could, about? They could fold back. Ooh. That's complicated. Yeah. Like imagine having a plane in the sky and the wings go from sticky out to swept back while you're flying it. I could imagine that doesn't always work. And so this was this was a design that was kind of big in the 70s and the 60s. The Americans had a few. The F-111, the F-14 used this system. You don't see it anymore because it's not that good a design. The idea is you have the sticky out wings for takeoff and landing. Okay. And then the foldy backy wings for, for going, going really, really fast. fast. Exactly. Nobody wanted to fly this thing. And this is where the story gets... It's still sad because we've already got all of these murdered Iraqi pilots. Yeah. This part is also sad. So Linda, she keeps a pile of her husband's unwashed clothes. And I'm telling this part of the story so that we remember that like in the, the Cold War was this massive fight between ideologies and nations. But there was humans in there. There's the, humans. There was yeah. like Iraqi pilots who wanted yeah. to go to Berlin for like a like just like a fun weekend. And yeah. there is and there's Linda lying in a pile of unwashed clothes just so she can feel like her husband is still there. Yeah. Do you want to get sadder? Uh, okay. Okay. I have a quote from Linda here. I thought it was possible that he was alive somewhere. That he was maybe some part of a witness relocation or protection program for a classified project. This is like the weird hidden cost of sure. covert actions. Well, it must be so difficult to process when you don't have an illness... 
you don't have a body, you don't have anything. You just, your husband walks out in the morning totally fine like any other day and then just disappears. Yeah. And that's that. And as soon as you're involved in this level of secrecy, exactly. it, again, it's like everything is possible. Sure. Now. Maybe he's still alive somewhere. Yeah. Uh, he was not, tragically. Uh, this feeling that she had lasted until 2006 when she was finally told the truth about what happened. Hmm. Because by that point, the program was, was long gone. So now let's get to the point. That was a long intro for this episode. Are we still, we're not still at the intro. We're that was the, the intro. We're at the end of the episode is where we are. We're going to now get to the guy who crashed. Yeah, the death of General Bond. Don't tell me he was flying to MiG. Well, here's the thing. Lieutenant General Robert Bond, he was a fighter pilot. He had flown F-86s in Korea, A-7s, F-4s, F-105s in Vietnam. Like, this guy was a pilot's pilot. Yep. After the war, he was involved in some large Air Force projects, including some classified black programs. Right. Like stuff that was off the book, stuff that was like top-level secrecy. And as we said at the beginning, on April 26, 1984, Bond was killed at Area 51. But how? So rumors start to circulate that he'd been flying top-secret stealth fighter, a plane that was designed so that radar beams wouldn't reflect back off of it. Okay. So a lot of rumors start to circulate. But on May 3rd, 1984, someone leaks a story to the New York Times that General Bond had been flying a MiG-23. And he had lost control of the plane and crashed. So here's the official story. Despite Bond being 54 years old, and that's unusual because pilots over 45 are not usually allowed to fly solo in service aircraft, and despite not having completed the extensive training required to fly a captured Soviet plane, General Bond had apparently requested to fly the MiG-23. But nobody wants to fly this thing. Yeah, he wanted to, apparently. Really? The test pilots did not. General Bond apparently did. Okay. Apparently. So he took off on two flights, and each one he's followed by an observer in a T-38. So on the second flight, Bond accelerated up past Mach 2, which is, again, unbelievably fast. And the T-38 just gets, like, blown into the weeds, basically. It is way behind. And Bond radios to the tower, stating, I'm out of control. I've got to get out. I'm out of control. Uh-oh. Now, the MiG then crashed in an area of Jackass Flats, which is part of the Nevada testing grounds, that was still radioactive from an experiment that was done almost 20 years earlier. Right. I want to just very briefly talk about why the area where he crashed was radioactive. This was NERVA, Nuclear Engine Rocket Vehicle Application. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like a a nuclear submarine, but for an aircraft. For a rocket, for like a space rocket. Oh, So this was a project, an attempt to build nuclear-powered spacecraft engines. And in January 1965, like two decades before the crash, one of the test reactors was deliberately allowed to run out of control to see what would happen if there was an accident during a nuclear rocket takeoff. Right. So they deliberately let one of these engines blow up. We should talk to Shelley about this. Well, what happened was, you're going to be shocked, the temperature rose to over 4,000 degrees Celsius, then exploded, sending chunks of deadly radioactive fuel for over a quarter of a mile. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion was, in the event of such a launch pad accident, death would come quickly to anyone standing 100 feet from ground zero, serious sickness and possible death at 400 feet, and an unhealthy dose at 1,000 feet. So like everybody on the base. They're dead. <laughs> Which is a big risk to yeah. take, no? It's, yeah. So when Bond ejected, the plane was traveling at such a high speed that the air resistance caused his neck to snap. Oh my God. And he was killed instantly. What happened to the MiG-23? We can probably figure that out. It had a lot of quirks to it. This was a hard plane to fly. 
when you are going faster than twice the speed of sound, a bunch of things start to happen. The controls are going to get very heavy. They're not going to be very responsive. It's going to feel like the airplane is no longer obeying what you want it to do. Okay. And to make things even scarier, at that speed, the canopy, the windshield at the front of the plane is going to start melting. Really? Because it's going to be so hot from the friction of the air. That's kind of cool. I mean, it's it's badass. Is, There's no denying it. A12 ox cart kind of stuff. I, it is, and that's why you had to build the A12 with those big gaps in it, because this, the heat, the tremendous heat of flying that fast. And so your windshield is melting, your plane is not responsive, and so what General Bond would almost certainly have done, like what would you have done? You're going too fast, the, the plane isn't responding to you, the windshield is melting. What would you do if you're that pilot? If I'm in that situation... I mean, obviously, he would have tried to slow down. Right. So what do you do? How do you try to slow down? How do you decelerate in an airplane? You just reduce the throttle. You yeah. pull back on the throttle. Exactly. You throttle back. Okay. Here's the thing about the MiG-23. No, you can't throttle back. You, you, can't, sure. you can't throttle back. <laughs> Seriously? Well, kind of. <laughs> the, the problem is that if you throttled back, I mean, this thing was a rocket. This thing was like a massive engine and then this plane built around it. If you throttled back too quickly, the engine is basically going to break off the plane okay. from the deceleration and the plane is going to explode. And so as a quote unquote safety feature, if you tried to throttle back at that speed, the engine wouldn't let you. Oh. There would be like a really, so, there'd be like a delay and then it would slowly start to creep back, but your windshield is melting and the plane is out of control. Right. And so, yeah. So ejected. And so at, you eject. At twice the speed of sound. At twice the speed of sound. Which is super unsafe. Yeah. And, and then he, and he died. And then the whole thing crashed into a radioactive part of Jackass Flats. So he was not flying a UFO. Well, here's the question. Why would the Pentagon leak a true story? Okay. Remember when the other MiG-23 crashed, just two years earlier, they said it was an F-5. They lied. Right. And then they never did reveal what it was. Not until... until like, 2006. At which point it was probably declassified anyway. Yeah. And okay. the MiG-23 was irrelevant at that point. So why would the Pentagon leak a true story? Like you were basically giving up on this unbelievably top secret MiG program. Okay. Like it was so secret that when they knew that the Soviet spy satellites were overhead, they would like cover everything up. They would make fake planes and, and heat up the area so it looked to the Soviet uh, spy satellites like there was some kind of weird American plane. And they would make sure that there was never a MiG out when there was a Soviet satellite above. Like, they were so serious about this. So, generally, the rule that I would go by, or the kind of guideline I would go by, is that if you're going to admit something that's embarrassing, it's in order to hide something that's even more embarrassing. Or more, or more secret. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. like, if, if, if there's something you don't want somebody to know... But they're getting close to knowing it. One way to throw them off the scent is to give them the half-truth or to give them some of the truth. And then we get to keep the really secret thing secret. Right. So are you saying then the really secret thing was the alien spacecraft that he was flying? And so, well, okay, okay, we'll tell him it's uh, MiG. Almost. Okay. But yes, you're totally right. There was something more secret that they were trying to protect. Okay. They knew they couldn't have a high-profile general get killed at Area 51 without giving the press something. Right. And so they had to make a decision. Which of our top secret programs are we going to give up here? Okay. And ultimately they decided we're going to blow the whistle on the MiG project. 
Because it kind of sucks anyway. It kind of sucks anyway. And because there was something more important they were trying to protect. Ooh, which is what I want to know about. The F-117. Oh. They were trying to protect the stealth fighter, the F-117. Now, it's Wait, an... It, so is that what he was flying? I don't think so. Uh, I, I considered the possibility. Okay. And if I if I found evidence to the contrary that maybe that he was... Because that also would make sense mm-hmm. if no test pilot wants to fly the MiG-23, but you got this like super... I mean, it really does look like something from the future even today. Mm-hmm. And so I could imagine this, as you say, pilot's pilot walks into Area 51 and sees this Darth Vader helmet of an airplane, which is impressive and futuristic. I could imagine him saying, all right, let me let me take a shot at this. Gets into that, messes it up for whatever reason. And who knows why he, you know, what, what the actual failure was. Now, very quickly, the F-117, which is the name of the stealth fighter, based on its name, the F-117, what kind of plane is it? It's a fighter. Although, again, that is wrong. Another lie. It isn't a fighter at all. It's an attack plane. It's a ground attack plane. Yeah, okay. A lot of the Area 51 planes, you'll notice, have the wrong name. Right, they're messing with you. And they're deliberately giving the wrong name, and the F-117 is one of those. So I considered that possibility, and I'm still willing to consider it as maybe something that did happen. Maybe Bond was killed in the F-117. I still think it's more likely that it okay, was actually so what's the MiG-23. your take? It's just that he went into the MiG-23, wanted to take it for a joyride, crashed it. But as I said, I'm willing to entertain the possibility that maybe he was in something else. There were a bunch of other programs at the time. I don't think there were any aircraft lost from some of those other programs. And so, like, there was some really wild experimental stuff going on there, but I have not been able to find any evidence that those planes were lost. Okay. So, I mean, maybe to continue the theme of this episode, I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. Uh, You're the airplane guy. I'm not. You say it was the MiG-23. I think he was flying the F-117. Okay. In order to keep that project secret, they gave up this dud of a Soviet airplane that turned like a boat. Yeah. And, And again, because of the world in which we're immersed, that also makes some sense. Like, I, I wouldn't discount that possibility. I think it's entirely possible. And so then you started with Lear. Let's go back to Lear. What was it in the photograph that Lear took that the Americans did not want people to find out about? It was the F-117. It was a MiG-21. Ah! Okay. And so what do we get from this? Area 51, people immediately associate it with aliens, of course. Right. I'm going to make the argument Area 51 doesn't need aliens to be... An extraordinary, bizarre place. It is amazing what they're producing there, what they're testing there. It can account for a lot of the phenomenon that at the time would appear as though you're seeing something that must be extraterrestrial because it's so outside of the norms of what you would expect. I mean, it is a secret base. So it is this functions as a vessel for, or, or what's the inkblot test though the rorschach the rorschach test where you kind of project onto it what you think the government is doing yeah so if you think they're hiding aliens well that's what's going on there if you think that they're like we do that they're developing really sophisticated weaponry then that's what's going on there yeah and i mean and we saw in this this story not only how weird things can get but how seriously these things are taken i mean the death count for this story was pretty high yeah 
And some of it was accidental death and some of it was murder. Some of it was murder. Yeah. And so, yeah, there we go. Another Area 51 story. I mean, that place just keeps on giving. And I just have to say, I was actually holding back when on talking about Cold War airplanes. I could have said a lot more. 